1: Last week on Fill In The Blanks, I wonder if we're really setting them up to be overwhelmed by what's happening in the world.
0: The conflicts I had to manage when I was in high school were real conflicts. There might've been a kid who was like, I don't know, kind of a bully threatening me that I had to like worry about maybe, I don't know. I had issues with my parents. Uh, I played sports, you know, and I had to think about like my friends or relationships, but those were real conflicts and they were limited. The conflicts that they may think they're in could be any number of things that are happening around the world, drought, famine, political unrest, body image, school shootings, any other number of things they're seeing on social media, they're not real conflicts in their lives, but they are to them.
1: I'm concerned that If part of our dealing with and teaching these kids about mental health is not also providing them real, genuine coping skills, real, genuine coping strategies for handling real world challenges, that we're going to put them out into a world that is a meritocracy, that is a got to get the product out the door got to get the work done they're going to eat them alive or they're just going to be
0: consumers forever right because like it's just setting up that system
1: yeah and there
0: are there are programs that do really a great job with that common sense media is digital literacy for young people of of all ages and and starts that program really young too we use that program at our school uh, because they do a great job the hardest thing as you know though is that 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 te- period between 12 and 25, with that second largest period of brain growth, where the brain's being flooded with dopamine, these phones are as addictive as heroin. And social media and all these other things, they just tap into they hire some of the best neuroscientists in the world to find out how to be even more insidious to the dopamine hit that people are getting as they're going through this phase. So then in that way, I always joke with people that being an adult is really either undoing adolescence that 12 to 25 period, or reliving it depending on your level of self-awareness, right? And that's really what we do. We're either undoing it or reliving it, but it's such a critical time period of brain growth that does set the neural pathways and habits and coping skills for them for life. And that's it speaks to your point of why it's important to teach it.
1: Yeah. And the problem is these phones, they're essentially a variable ratio reinforcement schedule, which is the most addictive and the most difficult to extinguish because they don't know. I just put up another picture. Maybe I'll get more likes. Maybe I'll do this. They don't know when they're going to get paid off. They just keep trying and trying and trying. Mm And they actually get depressed if they put up a picture and it gets half as many likes as the one before. They have a reactive depression to it. Then, God forbid, some troll gets on there and starts telling them to kill themselves. You're fat, ugly, dumb. I've always said the number one need in all people is acceptance, belongingness. The number one fear is rejection. This happens so much on the internet perceived by them. These kids have this need to be loved by strangers. And that's a real dangerous thing when you give your power away to this faceless mob that can turn on you at any second. I really wonder what we're doing or what we can do to toughen these kids up enough that they keep their own power and not give it away to this faceless mob of social media people. We call it social media. I really wonder if it's social media, because I think they're so needy on there that they just become addicted to this reinforcement that can be so fickle. One thing that we do in
0: the classroom, at least, is give them real actual scenarios that they're going to have to deal with and talk through how they can manage it differently and manage it better. I think a lot of times people think like school curriculum is just all these like lectures and you know, kind of talking down to people and stuff like that. I think the most effective thing I've seen with students is putting them in real situations. In one of the the uh, units we have when we talk about substance use, I'll break students into small groups. I'll walk around and be like, you've all been drinking at a party. This kid's passed out. You, the people who aren't passed out, need to discuss what you're gonna do about it. And then we're gonna talk about what your options are because we have to move past this point of hoping That they're gonna get these lessons, or hoping that if they see a PowerPoint or a lecture, it's gonna work. We have to start putting them in hey, here's a situation. Here's what your friend's going through. Here's what you're going through. What are we actually gonna do? And then, to your point of making them tougher, giving them the exposure without them actually having to go through with it, so that when they are in that situation, they're better prepared.
1: Yeah, makes a huge difference. I love what you're talking about in small groups. We've had some experts that we've worked with on teaching kids about. Taking care of themselves safety wise, and they teach them how to yell for help and do the different things. And they said the number one thing that made a difference in those kids actually being safe if someone tried to abduct them was if they role played it with their parents. They would tell them to yell, like, help, help, this is not my daddy, or fire, anything that made it distinctive they were to drop to the ground and start kicking, do anything that made them hard to get a hold of. And unless and until the parents went out in the yard with them, tried to grab them and had them start screaming and kicking and dropping to the ground and rolling that once they had done that four or five times, they didn't freeze up when it actually happened that they have to actually role play it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing it does too, if you think about the small group dynamic,
0: it's also teaching other kids how to speak up and what to do in those situations too. Because the reality is, especially when it comes to social media, a lot of kids do face shame and embarrassment, so they may not share it with their friends. And then if they do share it with their friends and their friends don't actually know what to do, then okay, they're sharing it and someone's not even gonna know what to say. It goes back to the conversation we were having about my students who are taking on talking people out of suicide or talking people down from suicide. If that person now, gets a chance to talk about this and understand it, then someone else in their life is gonna be like, hey, this isn't okay. Hey, this needs to change. Hey, what can we do? Who can we talk to about this? Because this isn't right. And I think the thing that we really underestimate about schools in America, we hear so many bad things about schools in America. And we hear so many bad things about education. And we hear so many bad things about, you know, what students are going through and teachers and parents and everything. The one thing that is guaranteed in every single school in this country is that there is a few, more than a few adults who care, who really genuinely are there every day of however long their career is because they care about kids. And what we're not doing is giving those adults the information that they could actually use in a classroom or in a curriculum that would make a difference. We keep saying we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. We have an unlimited amount of people in this country who are in schools who care and wanna know what to do and we're not giving them the resources that could actually help them.
1: I was invited to Capitol Hill by a bipartisan committee to testify on reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. One of the things I talked about is you've gotta put money in the curriculum to deal with cyberbullying. And here's the thing, if they don't put money and time Allocated in the curriculum to do what you're talking about, then it's not going to happen. Raising awareness is bullshit. You've got to actually put the money in to develop the curriculum that you're talking about, have developed and are continuing to develop. And then instead of having, like, homeroom where they sit in there and stare at each other, just even 20 minutes, three times a week, anything is better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That they're doing where they can talk about what you're talking about. This is what mental health is. These are the things that you need to be aware of. And every one of those kids then becomes an ambassador for those who didn't get that. Right. And they go to college and they recognize it. And they can pull somebody to the side and say, hey, people ask me a lot of times, how do you get past the defensiveness? You go say, hey, you need help. People don't react well to that. And I've always said, if you'll replace the word need with deserve, it makes all the difference in the world. If you'll go to somebody and say, it seems to me that you're having a hard time and you deserve some peace, you deserve some happiness, there are some people available that can help you enjoy that, that it really takes a lot of the defensiveness down. Every one of these classes that you're sharing that with, these 250,000 people, they're all ambassadors. They go out and impact 10 people, then that's 2.5 million. If they impact 100, it just grows. It's a ripple effect.
0: Yeah. No, it, it definitely is. And I think the other thing when you're talking about like legislating it, there are states that are mandating mental health curriculum in schools. Virginia did it. New York did right. it. Florida has done it to an extent, California's mandated suicide prevention, but there's never the follow through to make sure what they're doing or how they're doing it. So when you say all of these things could be large scale programs, not only could they be large scale programs that are easy to implement, we have enough resources where they could be cool. Exactly. Where you could use all of these, you know, influencers and everyone else to make it a part of actual behavior change and talk about the realities of it and support people And I I often never see the follow-through or the concerted effort on that.
1: It's like evidence-based therapies. This isn't about a teacher taking the time to go in and tell some war stories about their life. It's about going through a curriculum that has empirical data supporting the fact that this does teach the child, the teenager, whatever, information they need to recognize and react to situations in a timely way. 100%. Because when I talk about
0: my own experiences with uh, you know, attempting to take my own life, it's not about me. It's about using my story to get them to think about the choices and the decisions that they're making in their lives. And this is a, a practice that we developed. So uh, I became the director of outreach at the National Mental Health Awareness Campaign in 2002. The National Mental Health Awareness Campaign, you probably remember, mm-hmm. was launched by the Clinton administration right. in 99. And it was the first public health approach to mental health. So what a lot of people don't know is from 2002 to 2006, we went out and researched what were the most effective, responsible ways for people to share their stories about mental health. And I worked with researchers at NIMH, and I worked with people who were in you know, really high levels, prof- mental health professionals, so that we were doing it responsibly. And then we were able to launch the first Youth Mental Health awareness uh, uh, Speakers Bureau based off of the evidence-based ways of how you actually share your story in a way that allows people to think about their own lives. So not only are you saying it from a perspective of not being more stories, Dr. Phil, this is something we have practiced for, for two decades. This isn't new. This isn't us coming out of like left field and being like, hey, let's do this. The same trainings that I did to create the first large scale mental health presentations in this country are what we're doing with teachers today. It's not something that we're just throwing at the wall.
1: And they want to know. The teachers want to know what to do. They don't want to go in and make this stuff up on their own. No. They want to put the dots close together and connect them with a bright red line so they don't feel like, am I getting where I don't belong here? This is a tried and proven program. I was reading a study. You've probably seen it, but it was published in the Biological Psychiatry, Global Open Science. And they compared brains of young people pre- and post-pandemic and have determined that these teen brains aged during the pandemic at a much faster rate than for a like period when they did not go through the pandemic, and not in a positive way. It isn't that they matured. <laughs> yeah, <right>. they, didn't, <laughs> they, they didn't myelinate their neural pathways. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, they <laughs> aged, and they compared scans of the physical structures of their brains before and after the pandemic, and they knew going in that they had higher levels of depression and anxiety and fearfulness, but what they didn't know Was the effects of the brain. And so they looked at MRI scans. They found thinning of the tissues in the cortex, which, as we know, is the planning and executive function and all foresight, the ability to see the consequences of their action. When they really dug down, they saw changes that can result in higher risk of cancer, diabetes, heart disease, a lot of things because of how the brain is reacting. So This is not something that is likely to cure up in a short period of time. Now, the brain is very resilient. There's no question about that. And with the proper kind of nurturance and good sleep and good nutrition, these brains potentially can recover. That's why I say this is a longitudinal problem. If everything that we can do to support them behaviorally, mentally, and emotionally is going to support, Recovery brain wise. It just all fits together. My question to you is we started talking about the tech happening. Do you know Dan Siegel by any chance? Of course. He's on our advisory board here and is a really valued colleague of mine. We've talked about this some. And as I said, these college kids now that have an attitude where I guess about 13 or 14, 2013, 2014 was kind of the first time they started medicalizing their complaints. They start saying, this professor said some things I disagreed with that hurt me, made me feel unsafe, made me whatever. So we've seen more professors dismissed from student complaints in the last several years than we've seen since the McCarthy era from students complaining. Now, I haven't studied these on a case-by-case basis, although I've looked at several. Not all professors are great. Some of them probably crossed some lines, but a lot of them it was ideological. It had to do with asking students to take the law enforcement side in the George Floyd situation or a side that was contrary to their core beliefs, which I thought was how you learned how you resolve cognitive dissonance, how you looked at the other side, how you broadened your scope. And studies show anywhere between 15 and 30 percent of students think it's okay to yell down a speaker on campus that you disagree with. Stunning to me. Yeah, it's a big change. A big change. Are we coddling them too much? And and
0: what's the line between coddling and empowering, right? Exactly. Because at one, at some point you want them to speak up. You know, there are certain issues in our society today that are based on people's identity markers, and and if you have an identity marker that uh, is getting legislated or change that's out of your control, you want them to feel empowered to be like, hey, this isn't right, and I want to change. But on the flip side, you also want them to understand that uh, there are different perspectives, there are different viewpoints that impact your life and how do you balance those two? In the cases you're sharing, it sounds like we're going to an extreme in one way of uh, not, just, not just empowering, um, we're coddling to the point of like, you don't ever have to face this or realize this or experience this. I know that at UCLA's college counseling center, there are 54 college counselors now. And most of the, the concerns that come in are not about mental health disorders. They can't talk to a roommate. They can't talk. To, they can't ask on a, someone on a date. They don't know how to manage basic life skills. So I don't have the, the specific answer to um, if we're coddling them in regards to social justice issues or uh, speech, it, like right, looking at different perspectives from a college professor. But I do know that life skills in general are lacking. And I do know that at my school, the idea was, what if we started teaching these life skills from grade six to grade twelve, so that when they get to college, they're not going to the counseling center to figure this out. They're having a conversation with real people in their life because we can teach about conflict resolution and all these other things that they're relying on adults for. So it's probably much like you're saying uh, a, a, a combination of things, not just a, a quick one-off answer, but it's it's complicated.
1: And I'm not saying that they should agree with a professor or that they should be penalized if they don't agree with a professor, Right. but do you get him or her fired because they presented a point of view that's offensive to your sensibilities? People ask me a lot of times, what would I say is the job of a parent? There's a thousand ways you could describe that, but I think one of the broadest ways is to prepare the child for the next level of life. Yeah. When they're in kindergarten, you're preparing them to face the challenges that you face in kindergarten. But when they move up the ladder and they're having to be more independent in their study and stuff, that you prepare them to be more responsible and organized. And when they start getting into social situations, you really want to focus on their self-worth and their self-esteem, but you're preparing them for the next level of life. And right now, I wonder if some parents and universities are failing to prepare these young people for what the world is going to expect. Because whether you like it or not, this still is a meritocracy. They're going to be competing. And if they're not Willing to do things that don't fit their ideological value based position, they could wind up in a pretty menial job if they don't have the flexibility to not change their views, but accommodate those who disagree. There's also a difference between
0: canceling and calling in. Right. And most of the, when I have these conversations with my students, they know these differences really well. And they'll say, Uh, In a lot of ways, canceling one doesn't always exist because somebody ends up somewhere, right? But the aspect of calling someone in can lead to more restorative healing than just removing someone entirely. Obviously, if someone does something egregious, I think we both agree. Like that's just, there's no place for that. Right. But what you're saying of preparing them for the future, if we set up a system where everyone thinks, if I complain about this, then I'm not going to have to ever see it in my life we're not setting that person up for success. And and when you talk to, especially when I talk to young people who are victims of this in different ways, because gender dynamics play out in a, in a specific way, especially in, in middle schools and high schools, a lot of times they do want that person to be called in and they do want them to understand so that that person also grows for the future too and understands, oh, I wasn't aware that that's not something I can say. Now, that obviously there are cases where someone is, more than well-versed knowing that they shouldn't say that thing and they say it. So I think that when I, at least my experience with this younger generation is that they do want to have an opportunity to talk this out and see what can happen. You're talking about when a a system of structure or power takes even that away from them and just says, we're removing this person. and, And that's problematic.
1: Yeah, that is problematic. I've always said, I don't think we should have a cancel culture. I think we should have a council culture. Mm. I try to have both sides of issues on my platform here and give everybody an opportunity to speak their mind to a limit. I'm not going to have KKK hate mongers on here. That maybe is the other side, but they're going to have to go somewhere else to... Shows have done that. ...to talk about that. Yeah. (laughs) uh, That, to me is just sensationalizing, and I'm not gonna do that. But there can be two sides of an issue. Even homelessness, there's two sides of the issue. There are those that think home first, and then those think, no, we gotta get people earning the right to do this, and I'll have both sides on, and they're very respectful and talk about it. But then there are those who just say, thank you for having me on and talking about this, but I can't understand why you let those people come here and talk about it. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm not going to have just you and your side here talking about it. It really comes a lot from young people, college people, that I wonder what they're going to face when they get out there. I wonder if they're going to be coming back to their college saying, I paid you to prepare me and you didn't do it. That'll be interesting to see. It
0: will. And, you know, I think there are a lot of young people, too, that I see who... You know, they, 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 there's these issues where their identity marker is something they can't change. And they've had a really negative experience and they do wanna feel like someone in a, a, a power structure supports them. You know, sexual yeah. assault's a huge one. And sexual assault on college campuses have gone up significantly. Uh, there's a, you know, a great organization called It's On Us that tries to uh, prevent sexual assault. And when I have conversations with, especially young women, yeah, the amount of young women who've been sexually harassed by seventh grade is, is shocking. And, and we almost normalize it to a point where uh, they're kind of told like, well, this is the society you live in and this is what you're expected to just stomach or, or take. So I do think there's this growing um, hope that for some people, they think like, hey, if I speak up about this, something is going to change. And I, and I think in some ways you're seeing... Colleges say, yeah, it's going to change. We'll just get rid of these people, but that doesn't change it. That doesn't change their experience of being sexually harassed at such a young age, or having people be sexually assaulted with no consequences. So I'm choosing just a specific issue here. You were talking about political ideology. I think that this is that line between coddling and empowering. I I want these the the students I see to be speaking up and taking action in the ways they are, but it 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 can't go so far where um, it's taking away the Someone thinks they're solving the problem, but they're not actually solving the problem. They're not even addressing
1: it. I had a company called Courtroom Sciences, which was a trial science firm. We would help with trial strategy, do mock trials to test cases. During mock trials, I would often ask to role play the opposing counsel and argue the other side. And we sometimes went through thousands of mock jurors a year in different cases. I found real fast, I didn't really feel prepared for trial until I had learned and argued the other side's case. Let me tell you, everybody has a great case in the conference room. But you get out there in the courtroom and have to defend it and argue the other side, you go, oh, hadn't thought about that. I'd be representing a Fortune 100 company. They're getting sued and I had to then argue the plaintiff side against them Only when I learned that did I find out where the rubber really met the road in that case. I would come away saying, I understand their case now better than they do, and they're not making their best arguments, thank God, but I understand it. And I really wonder if we have a generation now that's willing to do that, willing to look at the other side's point of view.
0: Yeah, I I think that I think that a lot of them are. I think one thing that I see happening, at least, especially in the power dynamics, is there's far more representation of marginalized groups in our society today than ever before. Ever before. What I see happening from people who have privilege and power, they're they're interpreting representation as oppression to them. You know, you always hear the statement of uh, equality... Equality for some people in power or privilege feels like oppression. They don't have equality. These marginalized groups are are just getting representation. They don't have equality. And there is a feeling, I think, from privileged and powerful people that this representation is oppression to them, that how dare they have to acknowledge this other marginalized group, whatever it is, race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation. And so I think to, to kind of balance what you're saying, too, you're seeing this Gen Z have more representation, and have more rights than, than they've had in the past. And, and some powerful people are treating it as now it's oppressing them. How dare they ask for this? And I'm not saying you're doing that. I'm saying there there is a dynamic playing out where representation is feeling like oppression to groups in power. And when you talk about mental health, the mental health of young people who are in these marginalized groups is far worse than, than, than people who aren't in it if you are black, trans, and lower socioeconomic status, sure. your your mental health is gonna be yeah. m- much worse than someone else. So I, I I hear what you're saying. I think it all ties together, especially when we're talking about mental health advocacy.
1: Yeah, if you're in the group you just described, you're double digit at risk mm-hmm. compared to the rest of the population.
0: Yeah, so so in, you talk about what we can do in schools. One thing I do in, in my classrooms is I'll have students, so we'll put an identity marker on a, a white piece of paper, a big poster board around the room, and we'll put identity markers on there. So maybe it's by POC or white, male, uh, you know, female, woman, uh, LGBTQIA+, abled, disabled, right? We'll put different identity markers on there. And then on Post-it notes, kids will have to list what is uh, assumptions, stereotypes are difficult about having that identity marker. And they'll be brutally honest, you know, for, for white people to be white guilt, like, you know, whatever it is, or power or privilege, whatever it is. And, and they go around the room to do all these things. And at the end of the class, I'll have them read out everything they wrote. And I don't, I'll let them, you know, share what they want. And then I'll ask them, okay, what happens if you have multiple identity markers? Do you think you have higher stress or lower stress than these other people? And then they'll list the identity markers. i am be like, oh, I guess if I had all these identity markers. My mental health would be far worse. My stress levels would be much higher. So I don't have all the answers to to kind of what you're saying. I, I hear your concerns and I think they're valid, but I think it's also important to have students understand the the those layers of identity and how it affects your mental health.
1: Oh, I agree a hundred percent. What I'm saying is we need to prepare them to cope with mm. what they're going to have to deal with mm-hmm. when they get into the world. Mm-hmm because it is competitive and we got to give them the coping skills not just feed them to the machine mm-hmm. and then they get overwhelmed by all of those demands judgments exclusions or whatever and they go I I have no coping skills which is right. why I was so fascinated by what you're doing yeah because I think that is what's giving them the opportunity to learn how to not give their power away how to recognize when they're overwhelmed Raise their hand and ask for the help that they need. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's real. Yeah. We can change the world, but in the meantime, you've got to survive in it. That's the key. And we got to prepare them for the next level of life, and that's the next level of life. Well, let me ask you this in closing. Given that we do have so many more young people today that are experiencing. Pathological levels of anxiety, depression, loneliness, problems with mental and emotional well-being. What is your advice to parents to help keep these kids safe and to get them on as solid ground as possible? You have got a bunch of parents listening right now. As the wellness director, what would be your best advice to parents? It's a couple of key things. Number one, know your family history. So,
0: you know, I think I was 27 when I sat down with my parents and asked, hey, did anyone else in our family have a mental health disorder? And I'm not even exaggerating. Like 18 minutes later, they stopped naming people.
1: (laughs) You You go, hey, thanks for telling me. (laughs) you're (laughs) like, okay, so
0: there's two parts of knowing your family history. One is if you have mental health disorders or addiction in your family, you need to be extra vigilant because that is one of the biggest determining factors of if your kids are going to have it. Yeah. Uh, And then after knowing your family history, know more about those disorders so that you can spot them earlier on so that if you see outbursts and behavior that are persistent as a kid, well, like maybe it's bigger than just that emotional development or that milestone. So knowing your family history has to be first and foremost.
1: What a good point. We don't think about that enough. We all know there's genetic predispositions, but we don't think about it enough.
0: No. Three of my grandparents were alcoholic.
1: Yeah. What a great point.
0: So, you know, the chances of me abusing substances, if I started at a young age, were really high. My parents didn't know that. My parents just had to survive living with the kind of classic 1950s alcoholic parents, right? So that's hard. Uh, The second piece is if you know your family history and you, you, you learn about these disorders and you can spot warning signs earlier, you really wanna start a system where you can have conversations with your kid from a young age instead of confrontation. And that's hard. I think as parents, it's easy to say, do this, don't do this. Uh, and then you fall into that model from a, a young age and then the kid grows up in a dynamic of either pushing back against it, back talking, whatever it is, or engaging in it. And one of the things I always try to do, especially with my students, is try to make them the expert of the issue that I'm teaching them. So if we're talking about vaping, instead of starting the lesson with don't vape, I ask them, what do you know about vaping? Who do you know that's vaping? You don't have to name names, but like, what do they do? Why do they vape? What's happening in that system for them? And then, uh, you know, are you vaping? And that is a much different dynamic where that kid gets to feel like the expert and is a part of the conversation. And then, yeah, I might still have to get to a point where then we're like, yo, don't do this. Here's all the reasons why, but at least they feel included versus constant confrontation. And then I think another thing parents really need to do is model the behavior they wanna see. You can't just tell your kids, you want them to talk about their mental health. You want them to be balanced while you're working 40 hours a day (laughs) and like not sleeping, screaming at your partner, and modeling all the behaviors you don't want them to have. You you really, if you want your kids to have mental health, as difficult as it is in today's society where mental health isn't prioritized and it's not affordable in a lot of ways, right, for families, go outside and take a family walk and make sure it's something you do, even if they push back, because the second you give in on a boundary, a kid learns how to manipulate you. Being a child is really just trying to figure out how to manipulate parents into doing what you want. And if you don't have boundaries for what you are prioritizing as mental health, well, of course they're going to get out of it. So, so that's an important piece. The next piece is take care of yourself because no one else is going to. You know, I think, at least in my experience, and, and I've had, I don't have the experience of, of, of reaching as many people as you have, but I have spoken to over 2 million people in person. And the amount of parents who are in a dark place, who have a kid who doesn't want to admit they have a problem, who doesn't want to accept it, and is staying up you know, all hours of the night because they're worried that kid's not going to come home is a really common situation right now. My dad used to tell this gut-wrenching story where he would say he got to a point where he was convinced that one night it was just going to be the police at the door telling him I was dead. And in those moments, he knew that he had to take care of his mental health that if he didn't take care of his mental health, much like the oxygen mask on a plane, he wasn't gonna be able to give back to me. And so he always left the door open. And he had let me know like, hey, here's what's available to you. I care about you, I love you. And his, his hope was to not lose himself in the process. And I don't think parents are able to have enough time to do that, but it's, it's gotta be a priority, even if it's 15 minutes even if it's 30 minutes of joy. And if if you are in a a marriage, a relationship, a partnership, taking time for each other too so that you can maintain that partnership and not lose it amidst everything that's happening with the kids. My oldest brother has bipolar disorder and was in a psychiatric ward um, throughout his uh, college experience. I had my own struggles and my parents never stopped going on dates. They never stopped taking a one or two day vacation. They never stopped trying to maintain what kept them strong because they wanted to maintain that for the family. And yeah, sometimes it was strange, but for the most part, I get what they were trying to do. So that would be my advice. Know your family history, know what to look for, try to have conversations versus confrontations, um, model the mental health you wanna see and take
1: care of yourself. Well, that's a damn good checklist. And I always tell parents, talk to your kids about things that don't matter. Because you'll open those lines of communication, which you need when it comes time to talk about things that do matter. If they can talk about video games or sports or music or whatever, you don't want to talk to your child for the first time when it really counts. Get that line of communication open. I always use the analogy, it's like when you go to the ER, what's the first thing they do? You hear them on TV all the time say, give me an IB with ringer's lactate. That's just opening a line so when you figure out what you do need, you can plug it in. Right. That's what you got to do with your kids communication-wise. Get the line open, and when it comes time to talk about something that matters, you've got an open line. Yeah. And don't be
0: afraid to have those boundaries. You, you know, I think technology and boundaries for parents has really been a struggle because you know if you give the kid that device, you're gonna probably get to sleep. Yeah. But the device can't be the parent.
1: Yeah, we don't want electronic babysitters. We used to yeah. do it with TVs, now we're doing it with the devices, yeah. can't be. Well, what a great, great conversation. I'm gonna put this on the website, I'm gonna take the things that you just said, turn them into a list, mm-hmm. put them on the website so people can go look at them and have that list because it is very prescriptive about what people need to do. And I'm so inspired by what you're doing in teaching these kids. And if there's anything I can do to help, you tell me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm inspired by what you're doing. That's what I told you that day when we were together. And I could spend three more hours talking to you so i'm going to stalk you and get you back over here again i'm ready so we can pick up and talk more about this we have this crisis right now and i think it is an epidemic and we're going to have to do something about it we haven't even talked about the developmental issues that kids are having because of the academic gaps and what we're going to have to do to close that and what it's going to cause when it starts to obtain mentally and emotionally and how kids learn about themselves and form their self-image and self-esteem. There are so many more things that we can talk about, but we'll do that in part two. How's that? We'll hit that soon. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. Really, thank you for coming. Very, very helpful. Very important. I love this conversation. Thanks. All right, guys. That's it for today. All right. Thank you. Wow, that was great. Sorry to keep you so long, but I just no, didn't want to take anything out. It's fine. You um you have such a depth of knowledge of
0: all this stuff. It's it's super impressive. Really impressive. To be able to manage everything you manage and know the specifics of like school that's that's impressive. I talk
1: to a lot of people who are in schools who don't know as much as yeah. you. As you yeah. were talking about. <laughs> well, I'm very passionate about this. I didn't know if you knew I was serious that day when I said we've got to talk some more. But that's why I was after you. Yeah, so, I mean, and it, I'm serious when I say I want to do this again. Yeah, I mean,
0: if you want to come and see the school, I'd please come. To,
1: I would love to.
0: My students uh, all watched the episode. The school yeah. promoted it, so they were all excited. Yeah, and like. Asked him endless questions, like, what was it like?
1: Well, I was frustrated that some people took up our time. I wanted us to talk more. And I would like to do this some more. I'm very passionate about all this. Because there's so much to talk about. It's just, there is. it's too important. I think the best thing you've done for this country is
0: you've made mental health approachable. You are beamed into, you know, my aunt watches you, my my dad's sister, she watches you every single day and even she said like you have taken these concepts that are so difficult for people to understand, and you've made it relatable and understandable and that's what i try to do in the classroom is is look at that model and how can we make this a part of education so you know i think what you have blazed the trails for this in so many ways and and talking about how it can happen in the classroom is a natural bridge so i appreciate it people have promised me things endlessly over the past 20 years of me doing this work you're the first one who's actually been like i'm gonna follow up and, and make it
1: happen. yeah well i'm not from hollywood <laughs> i'm not a let's do lunch guy <laughs> i'm from texas and i say let's do lunch i mean let's no shit go get something to eat <laughs> here's food yeah